Some people mention the practice of metta or kindness. Other people mentioned a sense of gratitude for being able to connect with other people, even if it is online. And they mentioned how the kind of communication that we can have here feels very different than the average Zoom meeting for work, or even family. So I was reflecting on, well, what makes that difference? Because that ties into something that I've always been interested in. And that is what helps to create... And then what maintains healthy sanghas or communities. So tonight I'm going to meander around some of those topics and just see where it takes us. So I'd like to start with how the Buddha saw sangha. As I think most of you know, sangha is one of the three jewels or three treasures that traditionally Buddhists are invited to take refuge in. So the three jewels are, one, the Buddha himself, and not in the sense of slavishly following him as a spiritual authority, but instead orienting to the lived example he provides of the freedom that's possible when we live in alignment with the truth. So that's truth is one way of referring to the second jewel, which is the Dharma or the teachings. And this term Dharma can include the Buddha's teachings, and it can also mean the truth, natural law, the way things are. And then the third jewel is the Sangha, or the community of people who are following these teachings, trying to develop wisdom and compassion, all in service of the deepest freedom of heart and mind, which then supports us to be able to help others to do the same. So traditionally, the Sangha referred to just the ordained Sangha, the monastic community of monks and nuns, and was referring to those people who had attained some degree of awakening. But in contemporary times, it's been broadened to include any group of people who are sincerely trying to apply these teachings to wake up, to live with more ease and happiness, peace and freedom. So Sangha includes all of us here on this call tonight. So that's a very quick definition of what these three jewels or treasures are. And perhaps some of you might be wondering, well, what does it mean to take refuge in these three? The whole concept of taking refuge might sound a bit strange, or at least it did to me when I first heard about it. Because I was identified with being independent and self-reliant and not needing anything from anyone, thank you very much. And especially in relation to Sangha, I was very wary of somehow being pressured to join, to belong, to conform, to give up who I was in order to fit in. So just to acknowledge that some of us, maybe all of us at some point, have experienced that kind of subtle pleasure, sorry, subtle pressure or tension between being part of a group or being excluded. And I'll come back, circle back to that later on in the talk. For now, I want to say that this theme of taking refuge, I want to stay with that, because implicit in that term is the idea that we need protection, we need shelter, we need a safe haven. And as I was exploring the idea of taking refuge in my own life, I realized that actually, it was often unconsciously already taking refuge in all kinds of things 
that couldn't deliver what I really needed. So I was trying to escape the stresses and the strains and the uncertainty of life by taking refuge in, for example, romantic relationships, or being super busy, working hard, or in buying nice things, or planning pleasant experiences like an overseas holiday. And so I think all of us have our strategies for taking the edge off our existential dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or unease. And some of those things that I just mentioned, they aren't inherently unhealthy. It's how we're relating to them that's the issue. So if we have that sense that if I can just meet the right person or buy my dream home or plan the perfect holiday, then I'll be happy. If we're doing that, when we're, then we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because these experiences are impermanent, they're unreliable, and eventually the happiness they bring fades away. And this is perhaps even more obvious in the time of COVID when pretty much there's no such thing as planning anything. So instead of trying to find stability in an unstable world, the Buddha invited us to orient to what is truly reliable. In other words, the cultivation of our own hearts and minds. And with that cultivation, the inevitable ups and downs and rewards and challenges of life don't destabilize us. And this is what taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha is pointing to. And we need that refuge because it's not the direction that most of mainstream society is going in. Quite the opposite. Most people are living their lives pretty unconsciously, tossed around by their inner urges and then acting out on on them in ways that harm themselves and harm others too. So I'd like to bring in some words from Thich Nhat Hanh now. As you know, he was the much-loved Vietnamese Zen Buddhist master who died recently. And I think Claire is planning to share some reflections on his life at a future meeting soon. So for now, I'll just quote what he said about Sangha. He said, A good community is needed to help us resist the unwholesome ways of our time. Mindful living protects us and helps us go in the direction of peace. With the support of friends in the practice, peace has a chance. If you have a supportive sangha, it's easy to nourish your bodhicitta, the seeds of enlightenment. If you don't have anyone who understands you, who encourages you in the practice of the living dharma, your desire to practice may wither. Your sangha, family, friends and co-practitioners, is the soil, and you are the seed No matter how vigorous the seed is, if the soil does not provide nourishment, your seed will die. A good sangha is crucial for the practice. Please find a good sangha or help create one. So there's a few aspects of what he's saying there that I really appreciate. One is just the organic nature of the sangha as a fertile soil that the seeds of our awakening can grow from. And with that metaphor, perhaps we can understand too that not all soil is healthy. So some of you here are gardeners, but 
For me, I recently moved into a new co-housing community with quite a big garden, and we planned to grow all kinds of fruit and vegetables in it. So in the first few weeks after we moved in to what had until then been a building site, quite a few people enthusiastically planted seeds and seedlings, but they didn't all thrive. And it took a while to realize that the soil actually wasn't very healthy. So the gardening team did a lot of research and they spoke to various experts and they came up with all these strategies to help create a more fertile soil. And now, a few months later, the veggie garden is pumping. It's incredible how much food it's producing. So when I reflect on what makes a healthy sangha, I think of that soil metaphor. It's not enough just to hire a hall or set up a Zoom room and get a website and invite people to join on Thursday evenings. That's a good start, a necessary start. But for people to keep coming back, something more is needed. Something that's not as concrete and tangible as having a space to eat, but it's still crucial. And that's the culture, the values of the group itself. Now here, as with every other aspect of the Buddhist teachings, it's the quality of dana, or generosity, that forms the foundation that everything else springs from. Now I think most of you have heard me talk about how as the Dharma comes into contact with capitalist society, this term Dharma is often just equated with giving money, financial donation at the end of a talk or a course or a retreat, to support the teachers, to support the retreat centers. But in the Buddhist teachings, what's more important than the thing being given is the underlying quality of the heart that's motivating that giving. So he used a different word for that aspect of generosity, and that word is chaga. So chaga refers to the heart quality of openness, of warmth, of receptivity and empathy that inspires us to offer, to contribute, to connect, to give. Whether that giving is money or time or energy or care, even just a smile. And we can see that chaga in action here at Auckland Insight. Not all of you might know this group is run entirely by volunteers. No one is paid for all the time they put in to support this group. So I was inspired when at the end of last year we sent out that questionnaire. And as part of it we invited people to volunteer to contribute to different aspects of running the group. And I was inspired by how many of you were willing to put your hands up and to offer to help in different ways. And just to say too that showing up to the group every week is itself an act of generosity. It's giving your time, your energy, your presence. Because if you didn't show up, obviously at some point we wouldn't have a group. So even though the Buddha talked about taking refuge, it's important to keep in mind that we're also making refuge here. We're offering it, we're giving refuge to others and to ourselves by, by co-creating this sangha, which is a powerful act of dana and chaga, generosity. 
And this co-creation is maybe particularly important, again, in the context of our capitalist society, where the default mode is just to be a passive consumer, to pay your money and get the goods, without much effort required on our part. But a sangha is not simply a product we can buy. It's a living organism. It's a network of relationships that are founded in generosity and then sustained by kindness. So now we come to the second aspect of what sustains this fertile soil of the sangha. And that's the quality that quite a few of you mentioned last week, the quality of metta. Metta is a Pali word for kindness, goodwill, benevolence, universal friendliness. And over the years of our meeting together, one of the most common comments we hear from newcomers, as well as people who have been coming for a while, is the quality of friendliness and openness and acceptance that people can experience here. Now it can be easy to take that for granted, but I'm guessing we've all had the experience of not that, of coming into a group where people weren't felt, where there isn't that sense of a welcome. And how uncomfortable that can be when we come in and we don't feel like we're wanted, we don't belong. Now, just to acknowledge, none of us are perfect. We all have our ups and downs. So I'm not idealizing this community and saying, oh, every single person who shows up here will always be met with meta. No, we're all human. But nevertheless, most of us here, most of the time, we have that underlying motivation and tension towards metta. And that fertilizes the soil of our sangha. And it helps to establish a network of friendships that strengthen the health of this community. So the Buddha spoke very emphatically on the need for Kalyana Mitta on this path. Kalyana Mitta, being a Pali term, it's usually translated as spiritual friendship. Now, I don't particularly like that English term because for me it sounds a bit precious or even pious. But on the other hand, the term Kalyanamitta is not so easy to get the tongue around. So I'm going to use the term Dharma friend instead of spiritual friend. Hopefully that will make sense to you. So there's a very famous quote where the Buddha's attendant Ananda comes to see the Buddha all excited because, as Ananda says, he's just had the realization that, as he says, Dharma friendship is half the holy life. In other words, half of what's needed to walk this path to freedom. But the Buddha rebukes him quite strongly and he says, no, don't say that. Dharma friendship is actually the hold of what is needed to walk this path to freedom. So this sangha provides us an opportunity to create connections with each other that can develop into dharma friendships, which in turn strengthen the sangha as a whole and provide a kind of a matrix for the community to grow and our practice together to deepen. Okay, so, so far I've mostly been talking about the positive aspects of sangha, the benefits of taking refuge, of giving refuge, co-creating a community of Dharma friends. But, like everything else in life, it's not all sweetness and light, is it? So I'd like to take a little bit of time just to talk about the possible shadow sides of this process. 
And the first is that just by its very definition, by its nature, a group includes some people and excludes others. It wouldn't be a group if everyone belonged to it. It would just be the whole of society or the whole of the human population. So there are always limits around a group. And some people are in and some people are out. And so we want to try to bring as much awareness as possible to that sometimes unconscious process of exclusion. Now I'll say more about that soon and also in later talks. But just to keep in mind that as soon as a group forms, it also forms a culture, just as I've been describing tonight. So the culture I've been talking about in terms of dana and chaga, generosity, metta and kindness and dana friendship. And even these seemingly beautiful, benign values can set up norms and expectations that we might unconsciously pressure ourselves or others to live up to. So it's possible that for some of you, even just hearing this talk this evening, Possibly at times you noticed a feeling of inadequacy or maybe self-judgment or guilt that you haven't been doing enough or you haven't been contributing enough or you haven't been showing up enough. I name those things because I've often experienced them myself in relation to all the different groups and communities that I've been part of. So if you do notice at times anything in that terrain, try to bring kindness there. Just see them as conditioned thoughts, old patterns that happen to be attaching themselves to the idea of sangha. And just to reduce that kind of pressure, as I think most of you know, Auckland Insight aims to be an open group with no expectation that you should be showing up every single week. Some of you are new, so maybe to make it explicit, you can come once or twice, and then maybe never again. Or you can come very regularly for a few months, and maybe something in your life gets in the way for a while, you disappear, but you're always welcome back. There's no formal membership, there's no application process, and there's no commitment required. Now having said that, like everything else in life, what we get, the benefits we receive, they are proportional to the energy and the effort we put in. And again, like everything else in life, conditions change. So for all of us, there'll be times when we have less to contribute and times when we can offer more. And that's fine. So we want to be on the lookout for that tendency in ourselves to feel pressure to fit in or to conform to a perceived culture. Because the need to belong it's a primal human need, and it can drive unconscious forming of in-groups and out-groups, both within the group itself and more broadly within society. So this is potentially another way that our Sangha could get off track, by making a comfortable nest where everybody shares the same values, the same way of thinking, and then we get cosy in that. And the downside is that we become afraid of difference, afraid of challenge, afraid of conflict, afraid of growth. And we don't make the most of what a Sangha has to offer, the collective resources that support us to explore difficult issues within the group 
and in society as a whole. So this small, you could say, pod of Dharma practitioners, we can make a difference to the challenges of our times, such as climate change and social injustice, racism and misogyny and homophobia and widening inequality. These are all themes that we can start to explore in the context of Sangha in future meetings. For now, we can look at our group and ask, who is here? And who isn't here? And I have to acknowledge that's a slightly painful question to bring awareness to. Because if we were to take a cross-section of Aotearoa society as a whole and compare it to this group, we'd see that there are many people missing. Younger people, for a start. People who have less financial resources. Browner people, our Maori and Pacifica cousins. People from Asia, from India, from Africa, from Latin America. Not here. Non-binary and transgender people, as far as I know, are not here. Even males who identify as men are in a minority here. Now, we can't be all things to everyone, but it's good to keep bringing awareness to who is and isn't part of this sangha, so that as we explore this together, we can hopefully discover some of the less visible barriers that might be to being here together. So again, that's a huge topic, and I'm not trying to go into it in too much depth now. As I said at the beginning, what I am trying to do is just highlight a few themes as context, and then over the next few sessions we can see where they take us. So these themes include Dharma and Metta, Dharma friendship, Sangha, diversity and inclusivity, and broader societal issues such as climate change and social injustice, and not to forget the kitchen sink. So I don't know if there's anything I left out there, but that's quite a lot, and that's probably enough just to touch into for one evening. So I'll bring it to a close there and just say thank you for your attention, and then we can have time to explore some of these themes together.